Today we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. Last week you heard from Jeff Havisto about the Beatitudes. Thank you, Jeff, for serving, serving God's people and serving me. We had a wonderful time as a family at our one of our sending churches, uh, and we bring greetings from them. They, uh, they carry us on their hearts. Sovereign Grace Church of Maryland, formerly Chesapeake Community Church. So we had a wonderful time, and it's such a blessing to be able to go and visit and to know, too, that uh, the Word of God is going to be preached faithfully here. So thank you, Jeff. And you guys got to hear about the Beatitudes, these blessed attitudes, these eight different aspects of, of living under the King, these eight different qualities, these attitudes and actions that flow from them that really come from a life dependent on and lived for the King Himself, for Christ. Today we're going to look at uh, verses 13 through 16 as the King, Jesus, teaches us about what it means to live in the world as His followers. What it means to live in the world. Uh, this is such an important topic for us to understand. Uh, and thank God that we have the very words of Jesus in Matthew 5 to instruct us. We, we need His instruction. There are a lot of ideas out there about how a Christian is to interact with the world. A number of different perceptions. A number of different perceptions within Christendom. Uh, ideas that aren't necessarily bad, but may not be all, all good either. And it, it's important for us to have discernment, to understand. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world? How do we interact with the world? There are uh, different ideas, and there's probably two, two poles uh, two opposite extremes within Christianity on how to interact with the world. On, on one extreme would be what we could call the monastery view, that to be a Christian in the world means that you, that you need to be holy. You need to be like Jesus. and You need to be uh, unstained by the world, uncorrupted, and you need to preserve uh, the ways of God. And, and that the best way to do that is, is not to interact with the world, actually, to withdraw from the world and create a, a place where you can be together in Christian community and and, and apply the gospel to the whole of life, uh, to, to live together and to worship together and to work together in this Christian community, and therefore uh, be unstained, uncorrupted by the world. That would be the monastery view on one, on one extreme. The other extreme maybe we'll call the integrationist view, which says that no, 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 you need to be out in the world. Matter of fact, you need to be integrated in the world. The best thing to do is to be integrated in the world, to, to interact with the culture to the point where culture is actually uh, intermixed with the people of God. And, and we are, are setting up these ways of living for the whole culture. And we're calling people to, to live under us in every way. And we're to integrate. Now, those are the two extremes. And some examples on, on each end, the monastery view would be monasteries themselves. To some degree, uh, the modern Amish certain uh, American evangelical subcultures as well would be on that monastery view. And then on the, the integrationist end of things would be medieval Europe, where the church and the state were entirely mixed. And, and to live in the state, to live in the, the, any country there, was to live under the church. Uh, Puritan New England, to some degree. And elements of modern evangelicalism as well would be on, on that extreme. So we have monastery extreme and the integrationist extreme, and then probably the broad middle where many Christians live uh, of trying to be a holy people but also be in the world and trying to figure that out. Now, many of us have a, 
a conviction and a practice about how to live in the world that we might not even be aware of. And that's not necessarily a good thing. We can just kind of go with the flow of our, of our church or our friends or our Christian subculture without really thinking, what does it mean to be a Christian in the world? How do we interact? Monastery, integrationist, somewhere in between, how does this work? Well, we're not left alone. We have God's Word. We have this wonderful passage, Matthew uh, 13 to 16. And uh, God is faithful to speak to us and teach us from this Scripture. And I believe He wants us to understand how we are to live as Christians in the world. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask Him to speak to us and then we'll look at His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and Lord, how You are very interested in how we are to interact with the world. Thank You for Your faithfulness to instruct us. We're not left alone to figure this out. Lord, we want to hear from You this morning. We ask You, Lord, to speak to us from Your Word that we would learn and we would be changed and You would be glorified. Lord, I pray that, that, that Your Spirit would would anoint the preaching of Your Word. Lord, thank You for the blood of Christ and His life, Lord, that we're forgiven, I'm forgiven, and we can serve You by Your grace. So come and be with us. Teach us, Lord Jesus, from this sermon and be glorified in it, we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 13-16. This is a profound, succinct, and memorable teaching on how we are to interact with the world. Jesus does it in just four verses. Instructs us how to live in the world. There are books and books written out there on how to interact with the world. Jesus, in four verses packs it all together succinctly, profoundly, and memorably. Jesus is the, the ultimate preacher. He, he uses great word pictures here to convey truth to us. He uses this idea of salt and light. What he's saying is that we as God's people must live as distinct, holy influential, a distinct, holy, and influential presence in the world. We are to be a distinct, holy, and influential presence in the world. We are to be salt and light. So let's talk about this. First, salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Do you notice notice, uh, what sort of verb he uses? He says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say... You should be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you might be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say even you will be the salt of the earth if you work at it. He doesn't say those things. He says what? You are the salt of the earth. These qualities of being salt and light are inherent in being 
Christians. They are inherent in being followers of the King. It's not something we become. It's something we are. We are irresistibly salt and light if we belong to Jesus. To belong to Him is to be salt and to be light. To have Him in us. To have Him living in us. To have our lives transformed by Him in us and through us. To have come to Him by faith and grace trusting in His death on the cross, living by the power of His resurrection, is to be salt and light. It's a characteristic of a believer. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we have an overhead for this, speaking of the apostles and really by extension all Christians, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Guys, if you are a believer in Christ, if you belong to the King, you smell like Jesus. You smell like Jesus. Jesus is in you. And for some, that's a pleasant odor. For others, it's a stench. They don't like the smell. You smell like Jesus. There is a radical difference in your life. Christ is in you. And there's a radical perspective. He's come and He's changed your life. As you've come to know Him and put your faith in Him, turning from sin, He has has changed your life. And there's a new perspective and a new motivation. No longer does sin and selfishness have the same appeal it once did. No longer does the world entice you and deceive you. No longer does going with the flow work like it once did. There is a new king on the throne in your life. And the old king is no longer there. The old king of self is off the throne. Now, now yes, indeed, we can still get up on the throne. We can still resist him. And there is still other things that work in us that trouble us. Sin is still there, but there's a new thing going on inside the believer. Christ is in us. There's a new perspective, a new approach to life. There are new ambitions. And because of that, we are radically different as believers. By nature, as believers, because of His life in us, because of the new birth, which is a work of God that you didn't do, you are radically different. So you are salt. You are light. You smell like Jesus. Though sometimes you wish you didn't perhaps, but you do, and you can't get away from that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. And He says you are the light of the world. There is a context to this saltiness. There is a context to being light. You are not salt. You are not like Jesus to be by yourself, to cloister, to become a clump. You are the salt of the earth. The call... And the reality of life in Jesus is that you are put in the world. You are put amidst people that don't know Jesus and perhaps don't want to know Jesus. We are put as salt in the earth. We are put as the light of the world. There's a place for this salt and this light to interact in the world. So we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. There's who we are, what we are, and where we are. We are in the world. We are to be salt for the earth, salt, light for the world. Now salt, when we think of salt, we think of spiciness, right? When the use of salt for us 
Everyone here uses salt. Maybe some of you can't because of doctors, right? I use salt. I love salt. And what's salt used for in our culture? We mostly it's for flavoring. We put it on things like soup and meat and sauces and other stuff. Uh, my uncle puts it on bread. I know people who put salt on apples even, things like that. A key to a good meal is supposed to be putting salt, having the right amount of salt. But in Jesus' day, they did use it for flavoring, but the prime use, the most important use of salt was for preservation. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have power. They couldn't plug a fridge in and put their stuff in the fridge. And if they wanted to preserve things, uh, there were different methods, but one prime method was with salt. You would rub things in salt, and you might even store them in salt to preserve them. So if you had a, a nice, a nice uh, steak, actually if you had a, a cow that you were making into steak, that's where steak comes from, by the way. It comes from animals. Uh, we forget that, but anyhow, um, some of us maybe aren't going to eat steak anymore, but, but they come from animals. And say you had all this beef that you wanted to use, you'd, you'd have to preserve it somehow. You would do it in that day by salting it. It would be by preserving it through salt to keep it from deteriorating, to keep it from rotting. So when Jesus says, we are, you are the salt of the earth, he means that as believers, as those that follow the king, you are this element in the earth of preservation, of keeping it from deteriorating. The world, the earth, by implication, is like unpreserved meat. And if it's left to itself, it's going to decay and deteriorate. It's going to rot. And believers, followers of the king, are like salt in the earth. They are, they are distinct and different from the world, but they're to be dispersed in the world to affect the world to keep it from deteriorating. To keep it from deteriorating morally. So to be salt of the earth is to be agents of, of preservation. Agents of good. To keep the world from deteriorating. Left to itself, the world will do that. We are the salt of the earth. We are to be distinct. We're not to be the decaying beef of the earth. We are to be salt. Salt does its work in decaying meat by being different than the decaying meat. It's salty, right? Salt is salty. We taste it. It, it has an effect. Salt is different than the meat around it. It is to be distinct. And it is to embody the qualities of the king in the world. To keep the world from deteriorating. To have an effect on the world. That's important. So that, that's the, the first part of what Jesus is saying. You are the salt of the earth. Guys, to interact with the world means you first have to be different from the world. That if we are no different from the world, we have no effect on the world. We are to be distinct. We are to live life under the King and have our lives transformed. And really what the Sermon on the Mount does is it lays out in these three chapters how to be different. What it looks like to be a believer. And is not the qualities of the Sermon on the Mount radically different than the ways of the world? If we live those things out, will we not be distinct and different? So Jesus is calling us to live out these qualities to be like what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to because we know the King. An important element in the Sermon on the Mount, and we touched on this before, and I believe Jeff hit this last week as well, these qualities are not something that you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and do. These qualities are qualities that come from knowing the King. 
These are qualities that come from having Him as the center and source of your life. They come from depending on Him and knowing His grace. Being desperate in your weakness and sin. Running to the King for forgiveness and grace and power. And in that love and forgiveness that comes freely from Him, then walking under His kingship in a radically different way. So when He's calling us to be salt of the earth, it's not like, guys, you know, slap, 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 get out there and do it. No, He's saying, guys, live under the King and be salt of the earth. Be light of the world. We are to be different. We are to be distinct from the world in word and deed. Helmut, Helmut Felicki says, to look at some Christians, one would think that their ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. They sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all-too-easy conception of a loving God. But Jesus, of course, did not say you are the honey of the world. He said you are the salt of the earth. Salt bites. And the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been a biting thing. The truth of the Gospel, the truth of the King, the truth of life in the King is biting. It's salty. It's a contrast to the world. To interact with the world is to live differently and distinctly from the world. Now, Jesus in this talks about remaining salty. He tells us we are the salt of the earth and then says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus isn't teaching here about losing your salvation. And this has been understood perhaps that way, that if I don't remain salty, I'm good for nothing. I'll be thrown out of, of the kingdom. I'll be thrown out of Jesus' presence and trampled under feet. That's not the point here. There is teaching, sufficient teaching elsewhere in Scripture on that point. We understand that we are secure in Christ, and if we belong to the King, we are safe in Him, and we'll show the reality of that life and how we live. So yes, we do have to live things out. If we do belong to Him, we will. But that's not what He's getting at here. The reason He's talking about this is really to give us, give us the, the ridiculous reality of unsalty salt. There's no such thing as unsalty salt. It, there w- would be no use for it. If the salt wasn't salty, why have it? Why use it? It's useless. It's just dirt. Throw it out. It's to be trampled under feet. It's of no use to anybody. It's ridiculous, the idea that there would be unsalty salt. Also, for a believer, it's ridiculous to think that you interact with the world by being unsalty salt. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the glory of the Gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. The glory of the Gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. There is this tendency to think that the way I interact with the world is I minimize the difference between me and us as Christians in the world. If we could just minimize the difference as much as possible, yet still somehow be Christian, that's how we reach the world. And there's, there's lots of groups out there that do that. Now, we want to commend their heart, right? And their motive. And many of these groups are better at other, than others are at reaching people because they have this heart to reach people. That's commendable. Their method is not biblical, though. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 
You are to be different from the world. You are not to minimize the difference. You are to maximize the difference. And it's in maximizing that difference that you have an effect on the world. That the world sees something different. And as God works in their hearts, they recognize, you know what? This is different. This is unworldly. This is something else. Whatever's going on, I want to know more about it. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Not the other approach. And I've, I've seen that approach. When I was, uh, got out of college, I was involved with a ministry that was basically teaching this approach. It had the noble goal of reaching the lost, reaching the unchurched. But what it thought as a group to do was let's, let's minimize that difference. Let's do the best we can to, to minimize the difference between us and the world. Let's get rid of everything and start all over again. And, and again, the, the motive was great. And the reality that there are, is a lot about us as Christians that isn't biblical, that's merely cultural, and we think it's Christian and it's just cultural. Yes, let's get rid of that stuff. But they went, to the, went too far, really, with that point. That ministry no longer exists. They were badly mistaken. And the paths of history are littered with dead churches and dead church movements. Or church movements that are really no different than any other social group in the community because they've taken this approach. Jesus is not asking us to be deteriorating meat along with the rest of the world, but to be salt. We are to be different from the world. Now, let's not get it wrong. He's not asking us to revert back to the 1950s. We we wear suits and, and, uh, and house dresses and pearls and it's like something out of Leave it to Beaver. That's not the point uh, at all. It's not, it's not something like that. It's not an outward thing. It's about inward values. It's about the hearts. It's about our words. It's about relationships. It's about how we spend our time and our money, how we make career decisions, how we lead our families. It's about all of our life and how we live it under the King. Well, how are we to do this? How are we to be salts? Well, it's hard in a, in a message like this. I have about 40 minutes, and this is, a, this is a truth that's a lifetime job. There are so many things that we could talk about, so many ways to think how to be salt, how to live under the King, and really this series is about that. We're going to be spending time looking at how to live under the King. That's what the message is about. Uh, the series is about learning how to live under His kingship. So there's no time for me to go through everything, but I think I just want to hit on two areas of application, two ways we can think about. Now, you may have other things that are coming to mind, but let's just hit on two applications. Again, this has applications in, in every area, but let's just think in terms of, one, possessions. How do we live under the King? How do we be salty in possessions? I would submit that this is a major one for us. And this would be a major one where we are often not salty. The Lord wants us to be salty. He wants us to live under the King. So possessions. The the way the world looks at possessions is they are things to have. And they are things to have to bring happiness to ourselves. And the world goes so far uh, to, at times, to say uh, that really life comes from things. I, I get things to be happy and maybe to make those I love happy, we get things, and we find our life in those things. That's the worldly view of possessions. That's not the kingdom view. We'll see this later on, but, but the kingdom view is because the king loves us, because the king became poor for us so that we might be rich in him, 
because He rules all things and cares for His creation, we are free not to worry about possessions. We don't have to worry about them the way the world does. We, we don't have to seek our life in a place where there is no life. We find life in the King, and we are radically freed not to worry about possessions. But now, instead, to see possessions in a different way. To use possessions for kingdom priorities. To be freed up not to worry. And now to take our possessions and say, Lord, I'm so glad for who You are and what I have in You. Now I want to use these things for what You want to do. Yes, taking care of your family is part of that. But also, blessing kingdom work in and around you. In and through the church. Beyond the church. In missions. In in caring for the poor. There's many ways that we can do that. We are freed up under the King to look at possessions radically different. Our culture, our culture is very different in this. We live in a very materialistic culture. Perhaps the most. Uh, Dave Harvey in the book Worldliness quotes uh, an article about this where the, the author says, consumerism was the triumphant winner of the ideological wars of the 20th century. Consumerism was the winner of the ideological wars of the 20th century, beating out both religion and politics as the path millions of Americans follow to find purpose, meaning, order, and transcendent exaltation in their lives. Liberty in this market democracy has, for, uh, for many, come to mean freedom to buy as much as you can of whatever you wish, endlessly reinventing and telegraphing your sense of self with each new purchase. This is our culture. Materialism is a way of finding life and, and purpose in life. Compare it to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That's a radically different mindset than the world's. Well, how are we doing in this area? How are we salty? How are we different from the world around us? Do we look just like the world? Have we bought in to the American dream? Do we live for possessing a large or larger house and a nicer car? Do we have it as our chief ambition to send our child to the most prestigious college? Have electronics and videos and Gadgets and computer games replace the Word and prayer and fellowship and evangelism? Is stuff where we get our life? Or is Christ where we get our life? And do we use stuff for His kingdom purposes? That's what it is to be salty. And and we all wrestle with this. And God is after His kingdom purposes in our lives. For Peg and for me... uh, when I was a, a young, when we were young parents, uh, we really thought we were all sold out for the Lord. And then, through a, a number of circumstances, uh, God led us to buy a house in the inner city. And I can remember what that was like. We thought we were all sold out for the Lord until all of a sudden we didn't have what we wanted—that white picket fence, the nice neighbors, the nice car, uh, a neighborhood where people were nice to each other. We didn't have that, and I struggled as we lived in this ho- lived in that house in the inner city in a crime-ridden neighborhood. And God used that experience to expose my heart that what I was living for was not 
him. I'm not saying we all need to go move into the inner city. That's not the point. But he used that in our lives to expose these worldly values we had. We wanted material success instead of his kingdom purposes. And, and we are so glad for that season of life and how that shaped us. These things exist in all of us. The Lord is after us and our hearts that we might be salty in him and radically different as we find our life in him. One other application. There are uh, countless applications. Relationships. In the world, we have relationships really to, to make us happy. That's what we're after. I'm not trying to say everybody out there is, is as selfish as they might be in relationships. That's not what I'm saying. But more or less, we have relationships to make us feel good about ourselves. And so we build friendships with people that make us feel good. And we avoid people who make us feel bad. And often that it means people that are similar to us in tastes and, and preferences make us feel good. And people that are different from us or don't agree with us make us feel bad, so we avoid them. That's the approach to relationships in the world. We make people our reference points. And we define ourselves by other people. Now, we don't want to take this to an extreme. God's built us for relationships. I'm not saying that. But we use people as our reference points for life. That's the way of the world. The way of the kingdom is radically different. Our reference points is to be the king. It's to be our heavenly father. And we find our life in him. We find our identity in him. We are safe and secure in his free grace in Christ given so that our sins might be forgiven. His love given to us. The faithful promises that are ours. That's where we find our life. That becomes our reference point. And that frees us up to relate to people in a radically different way. Instead of living under what would be called the fear of man where we are constantly evaluating our life by our friends and what they think or don't think of us, we are freed up to now, instead of fearing our friends, love our friends. So we approach relationships radically different. So Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Mount is from that vantage point. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, there are radical ways of relating to people. We are, we are to, to be meek in the face of abuse. We are to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. We are to love our enemies. We are to do to others as we would like them to do to us. We are to love them freely. How can you possibly do that unless you're anchored in the King? Unless you live in His grace and, and know His love and forgiveness and are freed from the tyranny of the opinions of others to truly love them and serve them, no matter who they are, whether they love you or not, whether they are friends or enemies. That's radical compared to the world. That's saltiness. Approaching friendships from that radically different viewpoint. Well, how are we doing in this area? Do we relate to our coworkers in a worldly way or a kingdom way? Do we relate to our siblings in a worldly way or a kingdom way? Our spouse, our neighbors, our extended family. Is it more about getting or giving in Christ's name? The Sermon on the Mount, the King, calls us to live radically different lives in terms of relationship. Be salty in our relationships. Just a couple applications. We are the salt of the earth. We are to be salty. We are to be radically different in possessions, in relationships, in 
countless other applications. Moving on. Jesus says we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. We are the light because Christ is the light of the world ultimately and Christ is in us. His life, His truth illumines a dark and confused world. He comes to shine in the darkness and to rescue humanity from sin and deception and rebellion. He comes as the ultimate life who came and and gave His life on the cross, lived a perfect life in this dark world, lived with His Father as His reference point in all things, lived the Sermon on the Mount out because of that, because of His relationship with the Father, because He was God the Son who could do it perfectly. He lived this perfect life. And then He offered up this life for you and for me on the cross to pay for our sins and to please the Father with an offering so that on our behalf we might be forgiven and received by the Father as if we were the Son and His righteousness. His blood pays for our sins. His life pleases the Father and He receives us. He is the light of the world. And He is in us. But because He's in us, There is truth and there is a difference in who we are that shines out. He is in us. We are the light of the world in Him. Now, I like to think of it more like a a pixel on a TV. We have a TV, a big one in our basement. We got really cheap because one of the pixels was dead. But there's a million pixels on our TV. And it's really hard to find that one dead pixel pixel, if you look really hard. I, I think we're like that. We're pixels. We are... Together, we have Christ in us. We shine His light. We are little bits of light. And together we make a big picture. So it's not light by itself. But we shine for Him because He's in us. And through our lives, He illumines the dark world. And just as He was sent by the Father into the world, so He sends us. This is the second part of what Christ said. We are the salt of the earth. We are to be distinct and different from the world as we live in the world. Relating to the world, but from a very different vantage point. But also, we are to be in the world, illuminating the world. We are to be the light of the world. We are are to affect our world. We are to influence our world. We are to shine truth and by our deeds, bless the world. We are to influence our world. So we're not to be a monastery Christian group. Neither are we to be an integrationist Christian group. We are to be salt and light. Different, yet influential. Loving others, involved in in our community. Jesus says we are the light of the world. And then He goes on to say, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. He uses two examples to illustrate how we're light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. A city on a hill. In those days, they built cities on hills often. Now, Jerusalem is on a hill. It's, it's hundreds of feet above the valley nearby. Um, other cities were. When, in 2005, we got to go to Italy. And uh, in the Hilltown area, all these towns or cities built on hills uh, above the surrounding plain or valley. Uh, Boston, actually, is a city on a hill. Uh, originally, how many hills? Anyone know? Three. That's right. Tremont Street, three hills. Tremont. There were three hills in Boston, and it's built on the hill. It's a city on a hill. That was the original thought as well, that it would be a city on a hill to shine forth. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus' point is, if there's a city on the hill, it cannot hide itself. It's ridiculous for a city on a hill to somehow think it can hide itself. So it is ridiculous for a Christian to think that you can hide yourself in the world. You are a city on a hill. You are a light in a house. Nobody buys a light and puts it in a house and puts it under a basket. You don't, you don't go to Walmart with this nice new lamp, bring it home and say, don't you like this lamp? And then you take your trash bucket, you put the lamp where it's supposed to be, you put your trash bucket over it. Yeah, that's just right. I like it like that. That's ridiculous, right? You'd, you'd be insane to do that. It's just as ridiculous to be a Christian and think that somehow you can live in the world and not shine for Jesus. He's put us in the world to be a city on a hill that others will say, look, look at that person. There's something different about them. Look at that light. There's something different in their life. We are meant to shine forth. We are meant to be seen by others. And we don't always like that, do we? It can be embarrassing to be a city on a hill, can't it? Because you're different. You believe some crazy things. You, you believe actually that God is the center of all things. You believe that Jesus actually talks to you and speaks to you and leads you. You believe there are absolutes in life. And you stand out like a sore thumb, don't you? And we don't always like that. We try to hide the city on the hill. We try to put a basket over it. If there's just some way I can kind of minimize this thing. If I could just somehow not be so embarrassing to others. I'll just keep my mouth quiet. I'll put a basket over who I am. I'll hide it. And, and so we hide ourselves. We go incognito out into the world. We don't tell them about being a Christian. We just think, well, maybe they'll just kind of notice eventually. Because really, it's really embarrassing sometimes to talk about Jesus and, and, and to, to really say this thing that life is about Jesus, all from Him, through Him, and to Him. And, and He speaks to me. We don't want them to think we're crazy. So we minimize it. And then we withdraw, perhaps. I'm just going to be with the people that understand me. I'm going to hang out with other believers and go to a, a college maybe to get away from them. And nothing wrong with a Christian college, but we can sometimes go there and we can do things because we want to withdraw. We withdraw into our groups. We get really involved with church events and we don't go outside the church. Nothing wrong with church events. Nothing wrong with being involved in your church. But if that is all we're doing and we're not out in the world, there is something wrong. We are a light meant to be shining in the house. We are a city on a hill meant to be seen. And we must live in the security and love of the King if we are to get over this embarrassment to be out there shining. It's ridiculous for a city on a hill to hide. It's ridiculous to put a lamp under a basket. It's ridiculous for Christians to withdraw from the world and to try to get around the reality that you are different. The call is to let your light shine. To get out there and to interact and to be honest with who you are. And people might not like the lights. But you know what? There will be some who do. And they might not like it at first either. But as God draws them, they will begin to see and be interested in that light. If God were to somehow work in power tonight... And all of your extended family, all your neighbors, all your friends, all your coworkers, heard the gospel and came to Christ. Would any of them tomorrow say, 
Why did you never tell me about this? You're into this too? Why didn't you tell me? Would any of them say that? If that's the case, and I think all of us can say yes, I can name at least one, then you're putting the lamp under a basket. Now, it doesn't mean you go out and be obnoxious and you push their face in things. It begins with just simple, honest words. You let them know who you are. You say something about God maybe here and there. You're humble. You're gracious. But you are honest. And you let them know about the truth. And then look for simple ways just to bless them, to love them. Helpful, real ways. Before you give them a track, maybe you give them a helping hand. Maybe you go over and help them cut up firewood or something like that. There's a thousand different things. But we are a city on a hill. We are a light meant to shine. God has made us this way. And the Christianity has grown as people have let their lights shine. Historically, there are many examples. I've shared some in the past. Uh, the beginning of Christianity exploded because of God's people letting the light shine. There were a number of plagues that occurred and God's people cared for the sick and the rest of the world fled these cities and the, the, the believers stayed and cared for their own sick and the unbelievers. And, and people had to flee the cities. Many fled the cities because you'd get sick and you would die. But when they came back, they found here are these Christians still there caring for one another. The survival rate for some of those plagues were were very low, uh, 25% or so. But for the believers, as they cared for one another and gave food and and helped to one another, uh, people people 80% survived. And when they came back and saw these Christians whose light was shining in that way, it led to multiple conversions. The Christian church grew at a rate of 40% during that season. It's still the fact of how God works. So we are to let our lights shine. And you guys are, many of you are already doing this so well. Letting your light shine. It is uh, anniversary weekend for me. And so I'm going to take an opportunity to boast on my wife a little bit, who I think is a great example of a light shining. Um, many of you know that Peg's been working at the Pregnancy Care Center in Haverhill. Letting her light shine there. Uh, and it's just wonderful to watch. She's been you're not helping me, honey. <laughs> just four hours a, a week on Friday mornings and just caring for people in crisis pregnancy. And, uh, and through that, she's been able to share Christ with a number of ladies, and I think two or three uh, she's got to lead to Christ, um, just as she's let her light shine. Uh, my wife is a great example of this with our neighbors as well. Um, uh, one of our neighbors just had a baby recently, and she's just delighted in this woman and in their friendship, and just been there for them, been there to help, been there to care and to celebrate with the new birth as well. And her light has shown. There's also uh, another friend she has, her hairdresser. And, uh, and I know I could cite other examples as well uh, of you, but I'm just enjoying both from my wife a little bit. Her hairdresser is a friend she shares with, a friend from high school she's been sharing with, and just loving, being an honest friend uh, with her. She's given her her Bible. She's been praying for her. And our prayer, and uh, her friend communicated that she was going to come to church, hopefully next weekend or so. So thank you, honey, for being a light that shines. We want to be like you. I want to be like you. And I've been so blessed and challenged by your example to shine for Jesus. If the band could come up as we conclude.
We are the salt of the earth. We are to maintain our saltiness. We are to be different from the world. We are to offer them something radically different than what they know as we live under the King and under His kingdom ways. We are the light of the world. We aren't to hide ourselves. We aren't to to put it under a basket. We're not to try to hide the city on the hill. We are to shine forth. We are to love folks. We are to be involved with those around us and be honest with the life of Christ in us and let Him shine that light and the promise here, what God will do They will see our good deeds and give glory to the Father, to our Father who is in heaven. As the light shines, as the salt is salty, and the light shines forth, people will notice and be affected. This is how we interact with the world. As salt and light. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You that You have come and You have changed our lives. And because of You in us and through us, we are salt and we are light. Lord, thank You for this. And, and Lord, also we confess to You our weakness and our sin and being salt that sometimes isn't as salty or thinks we can somehow not be salty and being light that hides itself. Would You forgive us for this? And would you make us salty, salt, and bright, lucid light? Would you use us, Lord, among our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and in this community? Would you use us individually and as a church to be salt and light in this world that needs you? Your truth and Your presence. But would You lead us forward in this truth as well? I don't just want to touch on this today and then move on. I want us to be transformed by this truth and by Your call to be salt and light. So would You work in us? Might there be testimonies next week and next month and next year of how You have instructed us in living as salt and light and used us and worked and glorified Your name and touched lives? Come, Holy Spirit, into our lives. Fill us and accomplish these things, we pray in Christ's name.